Good morning, everyone. This is Dee Miles. I work with the National Education Commission. I will not delay. I will turn the uh, program, the class this morning, over to our moderator. And our moderator this morning uh, for us, afternoon for our speaker, but our moderator this morning um, is Luke from the great state of Ohio. You have the mic, Luke. Hello, friends and comrades. My name is Luke. I'm one co-chair of the Sam Pollock Club and a member of the Ohio District Committee of the Communist Party USA. Welcome to the Marxist classes, Give Peace a Chance, China in the World Today. In recognition of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I'll be speaking briefly about his 1967 speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence, in which Dr. King publicly denounces the Vietnam War and calls on the U.S. government to end all bombing campaigns in North and South Vietnam declare a unilateral ceasefire, set a date by which all U.S. troops will be removed and allow the National Liberation Front to play a role in peace negotiations and Vietnamese government generally. In his speech, Dr. King makes a moral appeal to the American government and people. He condemns the war as a part of his duty to the poor and to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He speaks of his calling to be a son of the living God and of a vocation of sonship and brotherhood with all people of the world. Dr. King talks about his responsibility to the poor, both at home and in Vietnam. At home, Dr. King saw his own hopes for poverty alleviation programs dashed as the U.S. began ramping up its assault on Vietnam. And in Vietnam, he saw peasants being forcefully removed from, removed from their land by U.S. forces, if not being outright murdered by them. In his speech, Dr. King forces the listener to confront the senseless violence and anti-democratic diplomacy perpetrated by the United States government. He also says, if America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't a reverend particularly concerned about civil rights and occasionally war and workers' rights. He was a revolutionary who worked tirelessly to, as he put it, save the soul of America. He goes on to quote somewhat of a warning from a statement from the Buddhist leaders within Vietnam. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism. Today, in the era of neoliberal state monopoly capitalism, it is safe to say that the image of America is one of violence and militarism, and the soul which Dr. King and many other Americans fought to save is in peril. We are once again tasked with building a peace movement that challenges our people to see through the rabid anti-communism in the media to see our interests inextricably linked uh, with those of our fellow workers across the world. We must show to our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and other members of our community that the warmongering capitalists succeed in waging war. It means death and destruction, not only thousands of miles away, but also in our own homes. Money spent on bombs and arms is better spent caring for our elders, giving our children a quality education, and providing good, sustainable jobs for our working population. Dr. King says in his speech, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood, it ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Friends and comrades, we cannot wait until it is too late to speak on behalf of our Chinese brothers and sisters. The AUKUS agreement is in effect. The ruling classes in the US, UK, and Australia are in agreement. The well-being of the working class means nothing if there's political and economic hegemony on the line. Now is the time to unite with all peace-loving people around the world and make clear to the ruling class, we are for peaceful cooperation, not sanctions and war. As communists and proletarian internationalists, we have a duty to engage with Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy and to struggle for peace, democracy, and an America that is a beacon of hope rather than the final bastion of capital militarism. With that, I will give the floor to our speaker. Thank you very much, Luke. Thank you very much, Dee. Uh, and thank you very much, everyone, for inviting me to participate in today's event. 
and um, you know Chinese New Year greetings to all of you um, and belated MLK Day greetings to all of you. My name is Carlos Martinez. I'm a writer and activist based in London, Britain. I'm co-editor of the Friends of Socialist China platform, a co-founder of the No Cold War campaign. I run the political history blog called Invent the Future, and I've written a book about the Soviet Union, which is uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is called The End of the Beginning, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse. So the title of today's event is Give Peace a Chance. And so I'm going to focus my remarks on the US-led New Cold War, uh, relations between the US and China, and the need to move away from this current trajectory that we're on in the direction of war, conflict, aggression towards a trajectory of a lasting peace. In terms of US-China relations, what we've seen over the last few years is a quite alarming deterioration. Um, what we've seen is rising hostility, the emergence of a Cold War that contains within itself the permanent threat of hot war. Apart from anything else, the original Cold War wasn't all that cold in Vietnam, for example, or in Korea, or in Laos, or in Cambodia, or Chile, or Argentina, or Brazil, or Angola, Mozambique, Indonesia, and elsewhere. The Cold War actually wasn't cold at all. Its heat resulted in death and tragedy on a terrible scale. And the new Cold War is similar in many ways. Um, indeed, you could argue that it's a continuation of the original Cold War. What was the essence of the Cold War? Truman said it in no uncertain terms from the very beginning in, in 1947. He said that the Cold War was designed to foster a world environment in which the American system can survive and flourish. The Cold War is usually talked about in kind of pretty innocuous and pretty mundane terms as a, a clash of civilizations with the forces of good represented by the great democracy-loving Americans and the forces of evil represented by the mean commie authoritarians. And this narrative is obviously a very long way from the truth. What the Cold War really was, was a protracted struggle by the US and its allies to protect the long-term viability of the US-led imperialist world system. And that obviously meant weakening the global socialist movement. It meant weakening the forces of national liberation and undermining the trajectory towards sovereignty, towards equality in international relations. You know, this wasn't about good and evil as such, you know, like anything else under capitalism, it was about business, creating a favorable environment for US capital, opening up markets, gathering raw materials, exploiting cheap labor, grabbing land, grabbing resources, extracting oil, and, you know, creating a favorable environment for US capital very often meant creating an unfavorable environment for sovereign development elsewhere in the world. It meant waging wars, organizing coups, organizing assassinations in order to install proxy governments willing to do the bidding of the US, willing to do the bidding of the US's allies. All pretty prosaic stuff, you know, very little connection to any kind of clash of civilizations. And if the Cold War had really been a clash of civilizations, if the violence of the second half of the 20th century was really a function of the ideological incompatibility of the United States and the Soviet Union, well, why didn't that violence end in 1991? We'd been promised a peace dividend. You know, it was the end of history. The good guys won, right? So where was the peace? But instead of peace, we found ourselves in an era of unconstrained aggression, of vicious imperialist wars that devastated Iraq, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan and Libya, proxy wars and destabilization campaigns against Syria, Venezuela, Zimbabwe and elsewhere. The violence didn't end in 1991 because imperialism didn't end in 1991. The basic economic imperative of domination continued. In fact, it turned out that the existence of the Soviet Union and the European socialist camp had been a major constraining force on the US war machine. And this theme of domination continues in the current period. It's the basic motivation behind the current new Cold War, you know, the principal, but not only target of which is the People's Republic of China. Just as for decades following World War II, there was an extensive strategy of containment and encirclement of the Soviet Union and its allies, these days there's an extensive strategy of containment and encirclement of China. What does that look like right now? It looks like rising US military presence in the South China Sea, 
it looks like the creation of AUKUS, a military pact of the US, Britain and Australia, which is quite obviously and explicitly aimed at boosting the military position of the US and its allies in relation to China and moving towards the establishment of a global NATO. It looks like deploying the terminal high altitude area defense system in South Korea and Guam, the purpose of which is to provide the US with the possibility of launching a nuclear attack on China without fear of retaliation. It looks like maintaining a set of military bases in occupied Okinawa. It looks like maintaining many thousands of US troops in Japan and South Korea, encouraging the remilitarization of Japan and the dismantling of its peace constitution, establishing a US military base in Darwin in North Australia, encouraging Taiwanese separatism, including by providing direct military aid to Taiwan, which was just announced for the first time a few months ago, and which constitutes a significant undermining of the One China principle. Economic warfare and sanctions, desperately trying to slow down China's rise as a technological power by preventing its access to the latest semiconductor technology, attempting to get Huawei removed from network infrastructure around the world, imposing spurious sanctions on China's solar energy materials, and not to forget, you know, a systematic slander campaign accusing China of genocide in Xinjiang, accusing China of violating the national rights of the peoples of Tibet, Inner Mongolia and elsewhere, accusing China of suppressing democracy in Hong Kong, accusing China of engaging in imperialism in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, in the Caribbean. So this is what the new Cold War looks like. It's a multifaceted attack, a hybrid war. And it's also an extremely dangerous situation. For one thing, you've got the possibility of escalation, like uh, uh, a relationship defined mainly on the basis of hostility and antagonism can very easily escalate, can very easily turn into, turn into armed conflict, especially when one of the sides involved is the most aggressive, the most militaristic power in history, especially when one of the sides involved pursues an economic policy of military Keynesianism, stimulating economic growth, through investment in the business of death, especially when one of the sides is committed to defending its global hegemony by any means necessary. And then secondly, there's currently a very obvious and urgent need for cooperation in the face of global challenges. Climate change is a threat to all of humanity. We're on the cusp of several planetary tipping points that could well result in large tracts of the earth becoming uninhabitable. The work of saving the planet and securing a shared home for humanity will only take place if we cooperate. All countries, especially the major powers, need to work together on this. China's taken the lead on renewable energy, it's taken the lead on biodiversity protection, but China can't solve the problem by itself. Like viruses, climate change doesn't respect borders. If sea levels keep rising, Guangzhou and Shanghai face devastation, just like New York City and Miami face devastation. Meanwhile, a new Cold War, a situation of hostility and conflict, isn't an appropriate context for the sort of cooperation that we need. In that sense, this question of US-China relations is a matter of grave concern, not just for the people of the US, not just for the people of China, but for the whole world. Um, similarly with pandemics, the COVID-19 pandemic has been and is devastating. Many millions have died, and in a sense, we've been quite lucky in the sense that COVID thus far has been less virulent, less deadly than many viruses. How are we gonna prevent the next pandemic if international relations are characterized by cold war, by hostility, by decoupling? We've created optimum conditions for viruses to attach themselves to humans in the sense that our actions have led to the disappearance of so many species that were previously hosts to viruses. So, the viruses evolve such that they can survive on different hosts and humans are the perfect candidate. So we need early warning systems, we need vaccines, we need epidemiologists, microbiologists, doctors, politicians, public health experts from around the world working together to understand how COVID-19 got out of control and ensuring something similar can be prevented from happening in the future. And again, a so-called decoupled world makes this level of cooperation extremely difficult. So we face these global problems that require global solutions. Um, you know, preventing climate breakdown, containing the pandemic, preventing future pandemics, tackling microbial resistance and more. And the new Cold War stands in the way of all of that. Now, many of us, um, including myself, to be honest, 
hoped that the situation would improve once Biden took office two years ago. After all, you know, could things really get any worse than they were, un uh, you know, under Trump, who would really put China bashing at the core of his foreign policy? Uh, you know, um, you know, one thing we should mention is that the trajectory towards Cold War started during the Obama administration, not the Trump administration. It was the so-called pivot to Asia um, that was announced in 2011, 12 years ago, that really heralded the early beginnings of this new Cold War. And Obama was you know, explicit that the purpose of this pivot was to preserve US hegemony. He wasn't a neocon. He didn't use neocon terminology. He didn't talk in terms of the project for a new American century, but he said the same thing in much more sophisticated language. He said, we have to make sure that America writes the rules of the global economy, because if we don't, China will. Now, his administration was responsible for several of the military aspects of China encirclement that I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, including the increased US military presence in the China Sea, the deployment and development of the FAD, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, and the construction of a US military base in North Australia. But at the least, during the Obama period, there was kind of some level of sensible, um, sensible cooperation, right? For example, the Paris Climate Agreement came about in no small part due to the coordination between the US and China. Trump, on the other hand, dropped the cooperation and just ramped up the confrontation. You know, Trump's big campaign promise was to stop China from raping our economy. China was engaged in the greatest theft ever perpetrated by anyone or any country in the history of the world. So he kicked off a trade war. His administration launched a global campaign to cut Huawei out of 5G infrastructure. He sought to ban WeChat and TikTok. Trump and Pompeo revived the idea of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, a strategic alliance of the US, Japan, Australia, and India, meant as a means of American power projection in China's neighborhood. Pompeo said the idea was for the Quad to be an Asian NATO. Anti-China propaganda reached a point where it was clearly fomenting anti-Asian racism, particularly when Trump insisted on referring to COVID as the Kung flu and the China virus and the Wuhan virus. So, you know, presumably it was a big relief for the world when Biden was elected. And sad to say, and of course, you know, there are important differences between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to domestic politics, but Biden has followed what is essentially a Trumpian position in relation to most aspects of foreign policy, US-China relations included. He said it clearly in one of his first speeches as president. China has an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch. Biden's continued the trade war. He's ramped up sanctions. He's ramped up the so-called chip war, to prevent China from accessing semiconductor technology. He said several times that the US would provide military support to Taiwan in the event that the PRC attempted to reunify China by non-peaceful means. And he sent Nancy Pelosi to Taipei and he's upgraded military cooperation with Taiwan. So it seems his administration is attempting to provoke China into a war over Taiwan to protect its sovereignty. He's launched AUKUS, um, you know, this military pact between Australia Britain and the US. He's using every conceivable means to construct a so-called democratic alliance, led by the US, of course, to slow down China's rise, to contain Russia, to prevent the emergence of a multipolar world. He's doubled down on the most lurid slander about human rights in Xinjiang. Um, so, so far, we have to say Biden's administration has only worked to deepen this new Cold War. And this absurdity has bipartisan support. 20 years ago, the project for, new, for the new American century was a pretty marginal neocon idea, but now both parties are pursuing precisely that project, albeit with different branding. And within government, there's almost no opposition to it. Tanzania's first president, Julius Nyerere, famously said that the United States is also a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. This absolutely resonates today when it comes to encircling China, weakening Russia, suffocating Cuba, destabilizing Venezuela, attacking Iran, punishing Nicaragua, and generally acting to prevent the emergence of an alternative, a multipolar, a democratic and just system of international relations. Nureri's words continue to resonate. 
So, you know, why now? What's happened? It's, you know, perhaps not difficult to understand why there might be a certain natural tension in US-China relations. China is, after all, a socialist country and a developing country. It stands for working class power, it stands for sovereign development, it stands for anti-imperialism and for humanity's march towards a communist future. Its basic political orientation is ultimately irreconcilable with that of the United States, which is the world's leading capitalist, the world's leading imperialist power. And for the first two decades of the PRC's existence, relations weren't at all good. You know, today we talk about the new Cold War, but China was, of course, one of the key targets of the original Cold War. Because of the US, China was prevented from taking its rightful place at the UN between 1949 and 1971. During that period, it was the small breakaway capitalist dictatorship on Taiwan Island that represented China on both the Security Council and the General Assembly. Truman sent the US Navy to the Taiwan Strait in 1950 to prevent China's reunification. The Korean War, in which an estimated 4 million people died, was motivated in part by a desire to weaken China and create conditions for the rolling back of the Chinese Revolution. A ruthless economic and diplomatic blockade was imposed on the People's Republic. Now, from the early 1970s, relations started to improve. There are lots of reasons for this, and we could easily spend a whole session talking about them. But ultimately, it boils down to, firstly, the US thought it could strengthen its position vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, given that the China and the USSR were at the time locked in a bitter ideological dispute. Secondly, China needed to break its isolation, especially its economic isolation, given that it was effectively under embargo from both of the superpowers. As is well known, Kissinger visited Beijing in 1971, followed by Nixon in 1972, and relations were finally normalized and bilateral relations established in 1979. And you know, from that period, China's economic reform started to create incredible, enormous, unprecedented opportunities for US business. Between 1972 and 2020, trade volume between the two countries increased by a factor of around 6,000. So, you know, the two countries have never been allies. Let's be clear about that. The relationship has always been highly complex. The relationship has always been highly contradictory. Nonetheless, there has been a great deal of mutually beneficial cooperation over the last 50 years. So what's changed? Well, China has continued getting stronger. Quantities turned into quality. You know, the West had been pretty happy to incorporate China into globalized capitalism, so long as China was content providing cheap labor to manufacture the t-shirts worn on the streets of New York City and London, that was fine. You know, apart from anything else, it was helping to make a lot of Americans very rich. But China always had a different plan to that. It was never the Communist Party of China's proposal that China would be like a permanent cheap labor force for the West. And actually, China was clear, it was explicit about that, about the strategy of leveraging their comparative advantage, the fact that they have this enormous, pretty well-educated, pretty low-wage working class to attract investment in order to accumulate capital, in order to accumulate technology, scientific understanding, and skill. Um, you know, and that was done with the purpose of upgrading the Chinese economy and correspondingly upgrading the Chinese people's standard of living. And whatever one thinks of that strategy, one has to accept that it's been phenomenally successful. You know, China within the next few years will overtake the US as the world's largest economy. It's becoming a science and technology powerhouse on renewable energy, on nanotechnology, on telecommunications, on nuclear energy, high-speed rail, infrastructure development, it's the global leader. It's shifted from being a low-income country to being a high-middle-income country in the space of a few decades. It's the only country to have done that. Um, and it's expected to become a high-income country later this year. So when China crosses that per capita income threshold, it will actually have the effect of more than doubling the percentage of the world's population living in higher income countries. Currently that's 16% and it's going to jump to 33%. And all of this economic development has been happening not under the tutelage and support of the US, as had been the case with Taiwan, with Singapore, with South Korea and so on, but within the framework of China's own homegrown strategy, worst of all, led by shock and horror, a communist party. 
living conditions have improved to an unprecedented degree. China's life expectancy, 80, um, uh, 78.2, now exceeds that of the US, and it's still going up, whereas in the US, very sad to say, it's decreasing. China isn't isolated anymore. For two thirds of the world's countries, China's their largest trading partner. Three quarters of UN member states are signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative, They're actively coordinating with China to develop their infrastructure. China has close economic and diplomatic ties with Russia, with Southeast Asia, with Central Asia, with the Middle East, with Africa, with Latin America, with the Caribbean. China's very active in promoting solidarity and mutually beneficial relations between the countries of the global south, including via BRICS, uh, the alliance of uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and more. It uses its voice to call for democracy and equality in international relationships, uh, to call for multilateralism and multipolarity, along with Cuba, Venezuela, Russia, Nicaragua, the DPRK and others. It's a member of the Group of Friends in Defense of the UN Charter, which has, was set up a couple of years ago to consolidate global opposition to unilateralism. And a multipolar world is crucial for those of us that stand for global peace. A multipolar world is one where the US and its allies can't go around bombing other countries, destabilizing other countries, engaging in proxy wars, organizing regime change operations, imposing unilateral economic sanctions and so on. China is at the core of this movement towards multipolarity and that is one of the key reasons it's now in the crosshairs of imperialism. In 1993, in the light of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Paul Wolfowitz stated, our strategy must now refocus on precluding the emergence of any potential future global competitor. That is, we're in a unipolar world now. The US is the only superpower and we need to be very vigilant about keeping it that way. Brzezinski published his famous and very influential book, The Grand Chessboard in 97. His central idea is very similar to that of Wolfowitz. He says, the issue of how a globally engaged America prevents the emergence of a dominant and antagonistic Eurasian power remains central to America's capacity to exercise global primacy. It is imperative that no Eurasian challenger emerges capable of dominating Eurasia and thus also of challenging America. The US ruling class's hope for China was that market reforms would work their magic, that a capitalist class would emerge with its own specific interests and representation, and that with the friendship, the encouragement, the assistance of the West, this class would find a way to undermine communist party rule and dismantle socialism. And they still retain that dream, of course, hence the ridiculous uh, in, you know, zeal and excitement levels whenever there's any kind of protest in China. But it did become increasingly clear that China is not going to follow the same path as the Soviet Union, that China was getting stronger, that China's flag was still red and would continue to be red, and that a strong socialist China with a multipolar orientation and close ties to the global south constituted a genuine threat not to the American people, but to the US ruling class's system of domination and hegemony. In the sphere of ideology, which the West takes very seriously as the central means of maintaining some sort of popular justification for its deeply exploitative and deeply unjust system, China provides a very tough challenge. You know, for the last four decades, neoliberal ideology has been deployed to justify a systematic attack on the rights of the working class in Britain, in the US, in Europe, on the basis that this was all part of improving productivity and competitiveness. And we were told, of course, that the wealth would trickle down. The wealth hasn't trickled down, but China's been pursuing a mixed economic model with state planning, heavy regulation of the market, public ownership of the most important elements of the economy, and its people have experienced a massive improvement in their incomes and living conditions, whereas wages in, and conditions have declined in the US. Um, meanwhile, we've all been taught for the last century that socialism doesn't work, that socialism just means generalized poverty, not prosperity, and that scientific and technical innovation is only possible under capitalism. This was never true, and the lie could only be sustained through spreading you know, wide misinformation about the Soviet Union and the other socialist countries. But China today 
provides a really quite insurmountable challenge to that idea. So as a result of the, all of this, China's become the big threat, the strategic competitor, hence the pivot to Asia, hence the trade war, hence the new Cold War, hence AUKUS, the Quad, and so on. So we've talked about what the new Cold War is. We've talked about why it's happening. We've talked about why it's dangerous. How do we respond to it? Um, I just want to talk about, you know, there's there's some fairly significant portions of the Western left that say that the tensions between US and China are an example of inter-imperialist rivalry, much like World War I and the situation leading up to it. On that basis, they put forward a slogan, neither Washington nor Beijing, a phrase that, you know, may be curiously familiar to those of you old enough to remember the days of neither Washington nor Moscow. Is it the case then that US and China are basically the same, that both are capitalist, both are imperialist powers intent on hegemony, both are intent on trampling on the peoples of the world in their pursuit of fabulous profits for a tiny elite? I put it to you that China is profoundly different from the US and that these two states are on opposite sides of the barricades in the global class struggle. I'm not gonna to go too deep into political theory in this talk, but I'd like to discuss some examples of the ways in which the US and China are very different on the basis of the old British proverb that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, what's the US's relationship with the rest of the world? Well, the US has over 800 overseas military bases, which it uses to maintain its status as the policeman of the world. It's been involved in nonstop wars of aggression in Korea, in Vietnam, Iraq, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Libya. It's been a major protagonist in proxy wars in Nicaragua, in Syria, in Yemen, and currently in Ukraine. It has by far the largest military budget in the world. It has been responsible for the overthrow of any number of foreign governments, the assassination of any number of foreign leaders. And this isn't ancient history. You know, for example, just three years ago, US forces murdered Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. The US imposes illegal unilateral sanctions on Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Belarus, Zimbabwe, North Korea, and several other countries. It's involved in stirring up strife and destabilization in numerous countries. It makes use of it makes liberal use of debt traps and economic coercion in order to secure profits for its companies. How about China? China has not 800 military bases, but one overseas military base in Djibouti, which it uses to protect ships from piracy and to assist with humanitarian rescue missions. It's involved in precisely zero wars of aggression. Uh, indeed, the last time it was at war was a brief and extremely unfortunate border conflict with Vietnam in 1979, which is 44 years ago. It isn't involved in any proxy wars. Its military budget is a third that of the US, in spite of the fact that its population is four times larger, that it has 14 land borders, and that it's being subjected to a systematic campaign of encirclement. It hasn't been responsible for the overthrow of any foreign government or the assassination of any foreign leaders. It vocally rejects unilateral sanctions. It rejects economic coercion. It pursues a policy of non-interference in other countries' internal affairs. And when China invests in other countries or loans money to other countries, there's no conditionality, you know, there's no imposition of austerity, there's no imposition of privatization, there's no structural adjustment. China's relations with other countries are built on the principles of non-interference, respect for sovereignty and mutual benefit, particularly with the developing countries, the countries of the global south. China positions itself as being a champion of their interests. Whereas the colonialist and imperialist powers held the global south in underdevelopment for centuries, China's making an important co contribution to their development. For example, since 2000, uh, when the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation was created, Chinese companies have built 10,000 kilometers of railways in Africa, along with 100,000 kilometers of roads and 1,000 bridges. The Chinese government has financed and built 170 schools in Africa, 130 hospitals, and 80 power stations. Not to mention the Africa, the Africa Union headquarters, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 
and Zimbabwe's new parliament building, almost every single African country is signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative because it represents development, it represents modernization, precisely what those countries have been denied by the Western capitalist powers. China consistently calls for Africa to have a bigger voice in international affairs. China was the first country, for example, to support the idea of the African Union joining the G20. While the US imposes a crippling blockade on Cuba, China is a great friend to Cuba, and just a few days ago donated $100 million to help Cuba with various humanitarian and rebuilding projects. While the US imposes sanctions and engages in destabilization in Venezuela and Nicaragua, China treats those countries with dignity, with respect, friendship, and solidarity. The former president of Guyana, Donald Ramota, put it simply recently, China promotes true equality and independence and treats every country with dignity. For the first time, developing countries find they're on an equal footing with higher income countries. So while the US is bolstering NATO, is bolstering AUKUS, the G7 and the IMF with a view to consolidating and expanding its hegemony, China promotes BRICS, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, the G20, the G77, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative. Its vision is one of peace, of cooperation and development. It's quite clearly absurd to put an equal sign between that, between China's foreign policy and the reality of the US-led imperialist system. And on that basis alone, we should be able to firmly state that the basic character of geopolitics in this era is not one of inter-imperialist rivalry between the US and China, but of a struggle between two key trends. On the one hand, towards a new Cold War, towards a new American century, the consolidation and expansion of US-led imperialism, and on the other hand, towards a multilateral, multipolar, democratic and fair world order based on the principles of the UN Charter. So, also to talk about poverty alleviation. If China's just another capitalist country, if China's just like the US, how do we explain its extraordinary commitment to and successes in poverty alleviation? China in 1949 was among the poorest countries in the world with a life expectancy of around 35, well under the global average, and a literacy rate of around 20%. Now it's on the cusp of becoming a high income country with a life expectancy of over 78, several years higher than the global average, and illiteracy is a thing of the past. This progress in the space of three generations doesn't happen without unbelievable commitment at all levels of society. 10 years ago, China's government launched an extensive targeted poverty alleviation program, identifying just under 100 million people as living below the poverty line. A goal was set to get this number to zero by 2021, the centenary of the founding of the CPC. That goal was achieved ahead of time in 2020, at the same time as the country was taking extraordinary measures to save people's lives from the COVID pandemic. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres described this effort as the greatest anti-poverty achievement in history. And you know, what does it mean to not suffer extreme poverty in China? It's not only the income threshold. Yes, you know, to be categorized as being out of poverty, you have to have an income of more than $1.90 a day, which is not a lot. But more than that, you have to have adequate food, adequate clothing, access to medical services, at least nine years of education, and safe housing with drinking water and electricity. And also bear in mind that the land ownership system in China means that there's no class of landless peasants as one finds elsewhere in the developing world, you know, with millions of people living in debt bondage or forced to flee to the cities to live you know, precarious lives in semi-urban, uh, peri-urban slums. So yes, there are still poor people in China with very little in the way of disposable income, but they have housing, they have food, clothing, education, healthcare, modern energy, running water. Um, you know, for literally billions of people in the global south, that's a pretty enviable position to be in. And to provide for everyone's basic needs like that in a massive developing country of 1.4 billion people is historically unprecedented. It's only possible because of China's socialist system. It's only possible because of the class structure of Chinese society. It required the mobilization of enormous resources an intense focus on the interests of the working classes. No capitalist country would do that or could do that. 
no country where political power is dominated by the owners of capital can prioritize the needs of the poor like that. China's basically solved the problem of homelessness. Why hasn't the US done that? Why hasn't Britain done that? These are countries with a, that are much richer than China in terms of average income. As Tupac Shakur so memorably said, they've got money for war but can't feed the poor. China, meanwhile, feeds the poor and doesn't engage in war. This is a reflection of two different political systems representing different social classes and fundamentally different worldviews. Once again, the slogan of neither Washington nor Beijing, the idea of putting an equal sign between the US and China is utter foolishness. Another example of the differences between the US and China is their differing response to the climate crisis. There's been a con consensus at a global level for over 30 years that we need urgent action to prevent catastrophic global heating. Uh, the effects of which would be you know, a significant rise in sea levels, disastrous flooding of major population centers around the world, the loss of a huge number of animal species, the rendering of vast swathes of the planet as uninhabitable. There's also been a consensus which is written into an international law that the advanced capitalist countries, the countries most responsible for creating this problem and with the resources to lead the way on fixing it, have the bulk of the responsibility. This is the principle of common but differentiated responsibility. The US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, these are the countries that should be blazing a trail to green sustainable development and should be sharing those resources with other countries. But these countries have left the problem to the market. The future of humanity has been left to neoliberal ideology under which the profit motive will generate solutions to all problems. And as a result of that, we've made almost no progress. Indeed, the problem's got bigger, it's got more urgent. It's been left to China to lead the way. You know, in 2021, China announced some historic commitments to achieve peak greenhouse gas emissions before 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. And that's consistent with UN recommendations for developing countries and will constitute easily the fastest transition of any industrialized country away from fossil fuels. China is now responsible for a third of all renewable energy investment. It's by far and away the global leader in the generation and consumption of solar energy, wind energy, hydro energy. Mm, it's the world leader in every type of electric transport. For example, 99% of the world's electric buses are produced in China. China has 38,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, which compares sort of pretty favorably with the US, which has 80 kilometers of high-speed rail. In the last 15 years, coal's share of the power mix in China has reduced from over 80% to around 50%. China is also a champion of forestation. In the last 40 years, forest coverage has doubled from 12% to 24% of the country's landmass. And unlike the major capitalist powers, China spends a lot more on renewable energy and environmental protection than it does on its military. Xi Jinping in particular has insisted on a very strong focus on environmental issues, saying in one of his first major speeches as General Secretary of the CPC, we must strike a balance between economic growth and environmental protection. We will be more conscientious in promoting green, circular and low carbon development. We will never again seek economic growth at the cost of the environment. You know, there's lots of talk in the US and Europe about a Green New Deal. But that remains a pretty fringe radical demand, the preserve of environmentalists, uh, uh, environmental activists and leftists. China's actually implementing a Green New Deal on an enormous scale, and it's sharing that experience, it's sharing its expertise with other countries. The Belt and Road's becoming green and increasingly focused on carbon neutral projects. China's conducted hundreds of assistance programs in Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean and elsewhere, related to climate change adaptation and mitigation. It's been involved in constructing renewable energy plants in dozens of countries, Cuba among them. And again, let's ask, why China? And again, we have to answer, it's because of the nature of China's political and economic system. It's because China's economy serves the people because the interests of private profit are subordinate to the needs of society, because development proceeds according to a plan and major strategic decisions are very much not left to the market, to the profit motive. So I already discussed at the beginning of this presentation, some of the dangers of a new Cold War. 
humanity faces very real existential threats of climate breakdown, pandemics, nuclear annihilation. If ever there were a time for peaceful coexistence, for putting differences aside and cooperating to secure the future of humanity, it's now. But it seems the US ruling class refuses to prioritize those concerns, refuses to give up on its project of imperialism, of hegemony, of domination. After a century, they still seem to think that it's better to be dead than red. It will require the bold, resolute, determined action of the masses in the US, in Canada, in Europe, to put a stop to this. We have to campaign for peace against military buildup, against China encirclement, against NATO expansion, against AUKUS, against military bases, against any attempts to provoke a war over Taiwan. We have to campaign against the trade war and the never-ending attempts to suppress China's rise. These bring no benefit to working people in the West, indeed will be the real losers from any so-called decoupling. We have to campaign against the demonization of China, against the slander, against the propaganda war. Malcolm X famously said that if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. And that's exactly what's going on with the propaganda war against China. China, with its record as a peaceful country, its friendly relations with the countries of the world, its relentless focus on improving living conditions and alleviating poverty, its contribution to the struggle against climate breakdown, its successes in saving millions of lives during the pandemic. What does the media tell us about China? That it's conducting a genocide against Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, wiping out democracy in Hong Kong, carrying out a land grab in Africa and so on. Accusations are thrown around with not a hint of credible evidence and they're repeated so often that they acquire the force of truth. These lurid accusations therefore have much in common with the allegation that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction ready to attack the West, or that the Libyan state under Muammar Gaddafi was preparing a massacre in Benghazi. This propaganda war is war propaganda. These are narratives constructed to mobilize public opinion in support of imperialist foreign policy, to wage a genocidal war against Iraq, to bomb Libya into the Stone Age, to carry out a wide-ranging campaign to contain and encircle the People's Republic of China and ultimately to roll back the Chinese Revolution. The hypocrisy of these accusations re regarding Xinjiang, their crocodile tears over putative human rights violations against Muslim peoples are nothing short of incredible. While they murder millions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, while they maintain a torture center and concentration camp in Guantanamo Bay, occupied Guantanamo Bay, they try to convince us that it's China that's engaged in the oppression of Muslims. But you know, this is this propaganda is very powerful, very sophisticated. It specifically taps into progressive ideas and sentiments. Progressive people are understandably and correctly sympathetic towards Muslims who've suffered terrible abuse in the West, particularly over the last two decades of the so-called war on terror. And so these cynical imperialist politicians and their friends in the media are mobilizing those legitimate sympathies in support of their China bashing campaign. We need to patiently and systematically debunk these myths, counter the propaganda war, and tell the truth about China. As socialists, as communists, we also need to recognize the critical importance of China. As it says on the Friends of Socialist China Statement of Aims, we support all the socialist countries, but we foreground China in particular because its size and its level of development give it an objectively critical role in the global transition to socialism. In 1989, Deng Xiaoping commented to Julius Nyerere that so long as socialism does not collapse in China, it will always hold its ground in the world. And those words continue to resonate. China has become, as Xi Jinping recently commented, the standard bearer of the global socialist movement. China's on the path towards its second centenary goal, which is building a great modern socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, harmonious and beautiful by 2049. This is setting out a path for a global movement that takes us further than we've ever been before, constructing a socialist modernization that's environmentally sustainable, that doesn't rely on colonialism or imperialism, and that features common prosperity. Our movement has a responsibility to learn about China, to build solidarity and friendship with China, 
to oppose any new Cold War and to promote the highest levels of mutually beneficial cooperation between our countries and China. Thank you very much for listening to me today. All right, um, I will now be taking questions. Anyone that has a question for Carlos, please use the control panel to raise your hand. Uh, I will then call on you and uh, open your mic. You will then open your mic on your end and present your question. Um, right now, I'm going to call on Norman. Uh, Norman, your mic, one second, is open. Go ahead. Let me see. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay. This was a magnificent presentation. Thank you. I will. Uh, I teach history, and uh, I will try when I receive this recording to share it with my students. I have two questions. Uh, one, uh, can you respond to the danger of neo-fascism, which has become a world danger and uh, which has uh, developed as a response internationally and I would say a kind of ally and twin of what is called neoliberalism. That is my first question. My second question, uh, and your presentation was really really fine uh, in terms of what China represents in the world and is doing in the world. Uh, do you have any suggestions uh, about what China should be doing in a more direct way to identify itself with socialist and communist parties and movements and their struggles? Uh, one of the differences, as you know, between China and the Soviet Union, uh, this is not a defense of the Soviet Union's policies at all, the Soviet Union did a great deal to directly identify itself, and it was attacked for this, with socialist movements, particularly communist parties in the world. Can you think of uh, things that China can do right now to identify itself. Those are my two questions. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Norman. Um, I'm looking for more raised hands. Please raise your hand if you have a question for Carlos. Um, I'm going to call on Elias. Elias, uh, I've opened your microphone. Please uh, open it on your end and present your question. Elias. Ah, hello. Yes, we can hear you now. Ah, thank you so much. Um, uh, I just wanted to uh, thank you, Carlos, for your presentation. It was really good. Um, uh, you may or may not have heard, uh, but uh, last night, I believe, there was uh, a shooting in Monterey Park in California. It just so happens to be uh, right next to where I live. And uh, this uh, unfortunately led to the death of uh, to over 10 people. And um, it happened on the uh, eve of Chinese New Year. And uh, I wanted to know if you think, or rather if you could elaborate on if there are genuine connections between the rabid anti-Asian propaganda uh, that our media puts out and these uh, unfortunate uh, events that keep happening. All right, Carlos, would you like to take a moment to respond to these questions? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Um, they're all, <laughs> I mean, they're all pretty big questions, and I'm not really qualified to answer all of them. And, you know, they they all are grounds for, for serious debate and discussion um, in relation to the danger of neo-fascism. I mean, I think that's that's a very clear and present danger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is kind of the role that, that fascism has always played 
since its inception, you know, around 100 years ago, is as a sort of backup plan for a capitalist class, which is losing control, which is facing a long-term systemic crisis, and which lacks other means to maintain its rule, um, to maintain power in the hands of the capitalist class. Um, yeah, well, you know, we're we're at the start of a pretty significant decline, which is already affecting us, I'm sure in the US, certainly in Europe, it's affecting us in a very serious way. You've got, you'll have many hundreds of thousands of people in this country, in Britain, at this exact moment of time, in time, um, where it's approximately freezing uh, temperature outside, who are having to make that awful choice between eating and heating on a daily basis. And their faith in the basic legitimacy of of the social social economic political system that they live under is declining and you know it's in precisely those moments historically that fascist or authoritarian bourgeois capitalist trends have stepped in um, to divert working classes and oppressed peoples and oppressed communities away from um, away from socialism, away from communism, away from Marxism, away from any movement towards the dismantling of capitalism, away from any movement towards the the replacement and consigning to history of an ec economic system based on the exploitation of one group of people by another. Um, so yes, I think it is a very serious danger. I and I don't think there's, you know, I don't think have anything really that profound you know other than the obvious to say about how we respond to it other than saying that you know we need to be extremely aware of it we need to be uh extremely thoughtful about how we build our alliances um you know in a sense you had the the change in the communist international's policy in the early to mid 1930s away from uh class against class policy towards a united front policy you know, we need to be having those kinds of discussions at a global level um, with comrades, with different parties, with different countries. And certainly, you know, we need to figure out where the where the line is, where the barricades are in this global class struggle um, against imperialism, against war, against fascism. And, and certainly um, on that basis and, and related to today's talk, we need to be uh, working closely uh, with our comrades in China um, to 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 build a global solidarity for a democratic and a prosperous future. Um, in terms of China's relationship with other communist parties, other socialist movements, and the differences uh, with the Soviet Union uh, and, and the support for world revolution and so on, this is another <laughs> extremely complicated historical and political question. Um, because you know, once, once a communist party is in power, then it has two different types of relations in a sense. It has comradely re relations with other organizations, other individuals, which are directed towards, um, which are directed towards a project of global socialism and, and the struggle of the global working class and oppressed peoples against imperialism. And it has, state-to-state -state relations you know mutually beneficial state-to-state -state relations and you know the 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 concept of peaceful coexistence has always been you know quite controversial in our movement but it's something that was put forward from lenin onwards from the 1920s onwards that we want to have peaceful coexistence between the socialist and the capitalist world we don't want confrontation we don't want to live with the permanent threat of war um, so it's actually, you know, it's a it's a very difficult game to play, which and the Soviet Union struggled with it as well. You know, the 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 Comintern was dismantled in 1943, 1945, uh, 1943 or 44, specifically because uh, the Western allies, Roosevelt and Churchill, um, wanted assurance from the Soviet Union that it wasn't going to be exporting revolution throughout Europe and North America. Um, you know, China uh, under, during the Mao leadership, uh, up until Mao's death in, in 76, and a, a f for a few years after, 
was a major sponsor of leftist movements throughout South, uh, Southeast Asia and other places in the world. It's under the context of its good neighbor policy, it stopped doing that. You know, essentially, it was trying to get investment from Malaysia, from Singapore, from Thailand, from various other countries. And the governments of those countries were saying, well, you're supporting guerrilla movements against us. So we'd like you to stop doing that. Otherwise, we're not going to invest. You know, we're not going to have mutually beneficial, friendly relations with you. With you. We're going to continue. Um, we're going to treat you as an enemy. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's a very fine line. There's a very difficult line to tread. I think what China is doing um, as an alternative to active support for global revolution, um, and what it's doing very successfully, is promoting south-south relations, is investing in other countries, is establishing mutually beneficial trade relations with other countries as a result of the existence of China as a source of investment, as a source of funding, as a source of trade, it gives, uh, and the pursuit of uh, a multipolar and multilateral international system of relations, it gives countries, especially of the global south, opportunities that they didn't have. You know, If in the 80s and 90s, the countries of Africa basically had to go on, go along with IMF ideology, because if they didn't, they wouldn't get loans and they wouldn't get capital and they wouldn't get investment and they wouldn't be able to develop. Now they've got another option. They've got the option of China, which doesn't impose structural, adjust, adjust, uh, structural adjustment programs, that doesn't impose uh, loan conditionality, that doesn't impose privatization and so on, as I referenced in my talk. Um, and that means that countries can independently choose their own development path, which, you know, which means that they've got an environment, uh, a context in which they can move towards socialism. And there's absolutely no question that China's survival as a, uh, sorry, Cuba's survival as a socialist country has been um, uh, like, China's support has been very important for that. The, everything that the Venezuela has been able to do, that Bolivia has been able to do, um, and that several other countries have been able to do in a direction of uh, socialism in a direction of people-oriented economic and political policy, like China's been a very big part of that. So I think that China today in 2023 is still a very important part in the global journey towards, uh, you know, uh, a socialist future, but in a much less explicit way, perhaps, uh, than the Soviet Union was. Um, in Relation to Elias's question about the shooting in California, I've only I've seen the headlines. Um, it's obviously you know a, a very tragic situation, and we've really seen far too many of these these situations. Um, and you know, it, regarding the connections between anti-Asian propaganda and these sorts of events, I mean, it seems pretty unquestionable. Um, particularly since the Donald Trump presidency, particularly since the launch of uh, the trade war and the really nasty racist terminology that that was all wrapped up in, particularly since uh, the outbreak of COVID, uh, the first recording of the epidemic in Wuhan in, in January 2020, um, the use of terminology like Kung flu, Wuhan virus, China virus, and so on, and you know the Biden administration's much more subtle but essentially continued uh, use of those ideas, like with the lab leak theory and so on and so forth, continuing to blame China, continuing to promote anti-China hysteria, nasty, lurid anti-China propaganda, the media's incessant focus and magnification and exaggeration of every problem in China without ever recognizing anything good that happens in China. You know, they could talk about the, you know, China's poverty alleviation, the most, the most wide-ranging and successful poverty alleviation program in history. They don't talk about that. They don't talk about China saving at least four million lives from COVID. You know, if China had followed the same policies as Britain and the United States in relation to COVID, China would have suffered four million deaths at least by this point. Um, they don't talk about what China is doing in relation to the environment. They don't talk about the fact that of 13 million jobs in renewable energy around the world, 
more than 40% of them are in China. You know, there's lots of good stories one can tell about China, but those stories don't get told because we're waging a propaganda war against China, because we're waging a new Cold War against China. And so everything that people hear about China is that they're bad and that they're to blame for our problems. They're to blame for the pandemic. They're to blame for the state of the US economy. You know, if, if you're in Ohio and you don't have a factory job anymore and you used to have a factory job 20 years ago, blame China. It's easy. And, you know, this is really an extension of anti-China propaganda that goes back to the Opium Wars. It goes back to 1840. It goes to this, back to this Fu Manchu image of the evil, ruthless, inscrutable Chinese that are intent on world domination and destroying the Western standard of living. You know, I think it's it's not at all surprising that that leads to, that that has led to a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, both in the United States and Britain and elsewhere. All right, thank you, Carlos. Um, it looks like we are starting to run out of time. So um, I would uh, encourage anyone who missed the introduction to look up Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1967 speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. Um, and uh, I would like to give the floor back to our presenter, Carlos, for any closing statements. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I've already spoken far too much, so <laughs> I, I don't have anything particularly interesting to say other than just to thank everybody for attending today. I hope you found it in some way useful. I co-edit the website Friends of Socialist China, as I said. You uh, please do keep up with that. Uh, the URL is socialistchina.org. Um, its Twitter handle is at socialist underscore China. Uh, I you know, do do try and get a hold of my book on the collapse of the Soviet Union if that's the sort of thing you're interested in. I'm currently finishing um, or coming towards the closing stages of finishing a book about Chinese socialism called The East is Still Red. Hopefully that should be out within the next, well, I'd say two to three months. And yeah, once again, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a, it's a great honor to speak to you. All right, thank you very much, friends and comrades. I hope you have a pleasant day and we'll see you at the next installment of the Marxist classes. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Carlos. Good day, everyone. Thanks, Take care.